Hi everybody, and welcome to The Dry Life, a podcast where we talk about the ins and outs of the alcohol-free lifestyle, sobriety, and everything in between. My name is Kayla Lyons, and I'm your host. Let's get started. Podcast, we have a special guest. Her name is Amy C. Willis, and you may know her as the sobriety and mindset coach. Hi, Amy. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing today? Good. I'm very happy to be here. So Amy, for those who are listening who may not follow you on Instagram or um, you know, on any of your platforms, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Mm-hmm. So as you said, I am a sobriety and mindset coach. I predominantly work with women who are looking to enter or sustain sobriety and ultimately really help them find their power and their freedom through their sober journey. And I come to this work Um, through my own experiences with alcohol addiction. I struggled with alcohol addiction for more than 15 years. And I also grew up in a home with a dad who struggled with alcohol addiction. And he actually passed away as a result of that. And so that was a really pivotal moment for me. Um, And it really changed the trajectory of my life. And so after his passing, I worked really hard to get sober and now I support other women in that same journey using some of the tools that I used when I was um, trying to figure it out in the early days of my sobriety. Um, So yeah, that's a little bit about me. I live in Toronto, Canada and I work with clients globally. Um, I'm also an EFT practitioner, which is also known as tapping Um, And I bring that into my work and I'm a feminist and I bring that into my work as well. So I really focus on accessibility and inclusion and the incorporation of anti-racist and anti-oppressive practices um, in the work that I do. Oh, that's awesome. So thank you for everything you do for our community. Mm -hmm. Um, Why don't we talk a little bit about, you know, your sobriety journey, you know, what What made you, I mean, I know you said your dad's death was a very pivotal moment, but I, did you have times before that occurrence where you kind of thought, you know, my drinking is out of control. uh, This is maladaptive. I need to stop. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I mean, um, even though like my drinking and the role it played in my life in a lot of ways, you know, at various points, it looked a lot like what my friends were doing. And so it wasn't necessarily like my experience with alcohol really stood out in comparison to everybody else. Mm -hmm. Um, But just because we're all doing really problematic stuff, it doesn't mean it's not problematic. Um, So there were definitely lots of moments along the way and, and, you know, a lot of like scary moments. I mean, um, I'm somebody who experienced a lot of blackouts when I was drinking Um, and that's actually like, most people don't have blackouts. Um, and that's like a really, especially as a woman, that's a really big concern. Um, and I would have moments of pause where I would really think about that and like wonder how I got home and what might've happened to me the night before. Um, but I would kind of just blow it off and not really take a serious look at what was happening until my dad died really that I decided to 
really take a pause and really check in and see what was going on. Um, because it was really starting to ruin my life. Like internally, Mm -hmm. I was not in a great place. Um, and there weren't necessarily external consequences. Like I've never had a DUI. I've never gone to rehab. I've never lost my job or my home or anything like that, but it was definitely, slowing me down, making me a watered down version of myself. And it was negatively impacting my relationships and basically how I was showing up in the world. It's scary how, you know, listening to your story. And I think so many people don't necessarily get sober or it takes them longer because the people who they're surrounded with are kind of, you know, drinking the same way. You know, I've talked Uh about this even with with my with my boyfriend recently where you get lost in this idea of like well everybody around me is drinking in the same way so it couldn't possibly be a problem versus the Mm -hmm. idea that well maybe you're all just drinking maladaptively or the Uh the culture is maladaptive versus oh well we couldn't all possibly be doing it wrong and it's like well why not (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I'm glad that you mentioned the culture piece because normative alcohol culture tells us in every shape and way and form that drinking is normal. It's something we should all want to do. It's something that we should infuse into our lives, whether it's for celebration or when we're sad or when we're happy or when we want to go out or when we want to socialize. Um, and to not use alcohol in that way is somehow abnormal right Mm -hmm. and so we get to a place where you know alcohol is the only drug that you have to explain why you're not using it compared to why you are right and so it's just like we're surrounded by you know we're inundated with these messages that this thing is normal and you should want to do it and if you don't you're weird and it's odd and your life is gonna suck and so it's no wonder that we're in groups of people who are doing the same things as us, you know? Mm -hmm. And I've always said, I know for, for me too, I was, you know, kind of that blackout artist and Mm -hmm. it's so easy to validate the blackouts and the drinking when like, for me, it was the college culture of, well, Mm -hmm. it's pretty, you know, which is sad, but it's pretty normal in these, especially Mm -hmm. these big like sports schools or these small, you know, schools in the middle of nowhere where there's really nothing else to do besides party. Um, mm-hmm. And so you kind of glaze over how alarming your behavior actually is. Because, mm-hmm. well, like I used to use the excuse of, well, our, our college paper, or not our college, but somebody at the college had created this paper that would come out on Sundays that had all the mug shots in it from the weekend. Uh, oh and my it was gosh. Like this, you know, hilarious oh. thing where it's like, great, well, now my picture's on there, and you know, your friends would get it and send you pictures. And it was a joke. But the, the fact is, it's like, oh. you know, if I could go and, you know, reach out to every single person who is on that page, you know, this five, six years later, I wonder how many of them either A, have a problem or B, are sober. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. because that's, it's, we 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 have been bred to drink abnormally and then it's like well mm-hmm. oops we're going to put you in the, the quote-unquote real world now where you can't drink like that 
like, but I've just been doing mm-hmm. that for four years. So how am I supposed to just stop? Yep. Totally. Yeah. That's wild about the paper with the mugshots. Oh, it, it was just, you know, <laughs> I can look back at it now and it's funny in, in a sense coming from like a recovery standpoint, you kind of have to laugh at a lot of your behavior. Otherwise, you know, you're going to drown in shame, <laughs> but it just, yeah. it's, it's alarming. It's like, Hey, why are so many, there's enough people every weekend to make like a paper <laughs> and totally, totally. And just, if you are certainly struggling as I was, you know, it's put on display. And of course I'm already feeling this, um, a large amount of, you know, internal shame. I can't imagine. I was just saying that with a friend, how now we have these, you know, platforms like Barstool Sports and old, you know, old row and who just literally don't post anything except for people who are like too fucked up. And it seems funny, but like, I genuinely worry about every person in those videos. And I think like, thank God, when I was in college, and still drinking that this was not a thing. Because I'm sure I would be the star of so many videos. (laughs) Oh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's wild. And I just don't think people don't, you know, especially when you're young, like you think, oh, it's funny. You know, this is, I can't wait. This is getting a million views. You're like, this could affect your job. This could affect your Mm -hmm. relationships. A, A lot of things. And that's what I think this younger generation and you know, the millennial generation and below and really anybody, but especially young people aren't really considering how big of a factor social media is and how when we record everything we're doing, it can be so damaging Mm -hmm. later. Like you may not have immediate consequences, how, like how you were Mm -hmm. saying, you know, okay, so maybe you've never been arrested, but like for me, I had immediate consequences. They weren't, they didn't do enough, but because of that, my behavior, now I'm paying for a lot of things, like with a criminal background, not being able to get a, a job at certain places and, you know, things coming up later that I, I worry mm-hmm. about this next generation going through these phases or thinking things are funny and, you know, they're so glamorized the way that, the way mm-hmm. that alcohol is marketed now to yep. where, you know, if your Instagram is public, anybody can come look at it employers you know possible relationships in the future and they can as much as it's harmful they can judge you and if and if you're drinking in every picture or you know you're taking a beer bong back it it might not make you look that good yeah totally yeah I mean um like you uh I'm grateful that during my drinking days that some of the things that you mentioned did not exist because yeah wow like I just I can't even believe it and like a picture in a video even when you delete that shit it exists it lives on forever um and yeah like it might you might not feel the consequences of it now but you also have no idea how that might resurface in the future yes so I know we talked about it a little emailing back and forth but now I mean I'm, I I think we're on the same page. I don't identify as an alcoholic. I did mm-hmm. when I was in AA, um, mm-hmm. but I stopped identifying, I think for, for a multitude of reasons, but I think 
and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm I'm with you on the idea of like the labeling theory. I just think it's negative. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting. Like when I was growing up, we applied the label alcoholic to my dad. Um, and I, I mean, obviously I wasn't thinking and, and engaging in alcohol culture in the same way and with the same level of maturity and like critical thinking skills as a teenager compared to how I do now. So it didn't really bother me then, but once I realized that I personally had a problem, applying the label alcoholic to myself just never felt right. Mm -hmm. And the more I've looked into it um, and sort of like looked at how it's used and, and its connection to like the brain disease model of addiction, which basically tells us that we are sick, we will be sick for the rest of our lives, that alcoholism is a lifelong disease, that we have to manage it dil diligently day in and day out for fear of relapse okay. and basically you know we're we're never going to get out from underneath it i mean when i think about it in those terms like that very much sounds like active addiction mm -hmm. to me and one of the things that i was seeking in my sobriety was freedom and freedom from feeling like there's something that you can't get out from underneath and so, you know, it never felt right for me. I didn't look at my experiences with addiction. I didn't look at how I engaged with alcohol. I didn't understand or conceptualize myself as somebody who was sick or diseased. And that's not to say I didn't have a problem. I definitely had a problem. It was literally ruining my life drink by drink. Um, but it, yeah, I just, I, I never wanted to take that on. And now, when I think about it, um, I think language is just so powerful mm -hmm. and our words are so like the words that we use mean something and they carry weight um, with them. And so taking on that label, I think it for in the case of alcoholic or addict, I think it goes beyond a label and becomes an identity. Yeah. Right. When you say I am this, I am an alcoholic, that becomes part of your identity and so much so that. I think other important parts of our identity are erased and swallowed up. And so we've just become our addiction. And I think that that just has this like dehumanizing effect on us. Um, not to mention, you know, the stigma and the shame and the embarrassment that goes along with carrying that label and carrying that identity. And I just, I think when it comes to addiction and, and really working through it and healing and being on a sober journey, we need to come from a place of feeling empowered and feeling like we actually have the capacity to change our situations and to change our lives. And I just, I'm not sure that the label alcoholic is helpful. And I should also say I know that it's, it's a, you know, very popular word. A lot of people who've struggled with addiction use it. And I think that if it works for you, keep using it. Like I'm certainly not here to be the word police, um, but it never worked for me. And, uh, and I know it doesn't work for a lot of other people. And, and yeah, I just, I want to come at it from a place of like, what is most helpful? What are we, what are we saying? And how can we find words and language to describe our situation that also feels empowering to us? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm 100% with you on 
everything. And I think anybody who knows me knows I hold very strong opinions when it comes to language, just neurolinguistics, mm-hmm. like you said, because the way that we talk about ourselves really shapes how we treat ourselves. And I think our perception yeah. of ourselves and, and of others. And for me, I read this book called The Biology of Desire. I don't know if so good, oh, right? Yeah. It's my favorite. It's my favorite. So yeah. I, I had a friend who recommended that to me when I had about a year and a half and I was kind of struggling with the idea of AA and like you said, the disease model. And it's just something that I, it never really stuck with me. And I, and I did it at the time because I was in such a bad place. And really at the time, you know, this was five years ago. Um, mm-hmm. All I knew, the only options that I knew about were like meetings because I'd already gone to treatment and really the tools they give you there are, okay, go to meetings. So you spend all this money to learn how to go to a meeting. Fine. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and so that's what I did. And it worked for me in the beginning. And I think it's a really great space for newcomers and people who don't have other options. Um, yeah. But in the same, you know, sentence, I can also say like, you have to be cautious because now we're bringing religion into, mm-hmm. you know, recovery. Now we're bringing in this book that has no scientific evidence. That's not a peer reviewed journal. That's not a medical book. Like it's just a, a book that mm-hmm. people are basing their entire life off of. And mm-hmm. something about that just never sat right with me. And this whole mm-hmm. idea of, like you said, like I have this disease that can never be cured. I was born this way. So inevitably I'm like, I was doomed from the beginning, which just sounds mm-hmm. silly, you know, and, and hopeless. Um, yeah. And I think also it, it, it was setting me up for failure and I knew it and I knew that there had to be something else. And so Mm -hmm. a friend recommended the biology of desire and I read that and I was like, holy shit. Awesome. Like, I'm so glad Mm -hmm. that I found this book because now I don't feel like the crazy person trying to leave the cult. That's like, maybe I'm just, you know, being, uh, you know, my alcoholic self, you know, and wanting to, to go in against the grain. But that's another thing when, when you say like, oh, like that's just my alcoholism. It's like that, that there's no such things. Like, so you're acting like an asshole or you're being ir- you know, you're being <laughs> irritable. Like you're, you have anxiety. Like there are other ways to say it. Like there's no such thing. I think as like, oh, that's just my alcoholism. Like that's pe- when people say, yeah. oh, well, I mean, I'm a Virgo. Like, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> so you're an <laughs> asshole. Like, I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> it's an, I think it's an excuse and that's why it's so old school. And like, I'm not trying to be Mm -hmm. this young millennial kind, you know, coming in like bulldozing traditions, but I kind of am in the sense that I have been doing so much research. And the facts are that people recover percentage wise higher outside of the rooms and outside of the Mm -hmm. outside of the disease model. Because Mm -hmm. especially now, you know, we're in the middle of pandemic, people are freaking out. Um, you know, we have less resources, we're isolated, anxiety is high. I, I mean, I had mm-hmm. to slip myself. But the idea that if you slip, like you have, you know, 
inevitably gone all the way down the rabbit hole. Like there's no coming back kind of a thing. That's dangerous. Of course, you're going to consume more and feel like you've fucked up and probably go on a binge rather than the idea that, you know, like the dry club puts out, which is like a slip is a slip. It's a fall forward. Mm -hmm. You can learn from Mm -hmm. it and solidify. Mm -hmm. If anything, you solidify why you don't drink anymore and continue to go. And that to me is positive Mm -hmm. reinforcement, which has been proven scientifically to work versus this punishment and shame and fear-based model that I think worked a hundred years ago when everybody believed in God and religion and Christianity. And now people don't. So we need other options. Yeah. 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 And like you say, I mean, it's this book that was written by two white cis male dudes who were like middle to upper class and they wrote it 85 years Mm -hmm. ago. And a lot of the world has changed in 85 years. And so to cling on to that book that really hasn't changed and really hasn't adapted with the times, whether it be language or like inclusion, um, it just, it just doesn't, it doesn't make that much sense. Um, and I, you know, I, I went to a few meetings myself very early on. I was like, AA is not for me. And I also want to acknowledge that like as an accessible peer based model, it's great. Mm -hmm. And for people who maybe don't have other options, like it is definitely way better than nothing at all. And trying to like figure it out on your own and there needs to be other options as well. Right. Cause it's definitely not for everybody. What, what made you kind of, when you went to the meetings, what kind of made you said, all right, this is not for me. Um, well, I mean, a few things. So before, before I started dealing with my own issues with addiction, um, I also went to some Al-Anon meetings to start to deal with like what I, what I experienced with my dad. Um, so I had that as well, but the going into the meetings and saying, I am an alcoholic, like, hi, my name is Amy and I'm an alcoholic. I mean, again, kind of going back to the language and also what you said around like the words we choose and how we treat ourselves and how we conceptualize ourselves. Like, what does it mean to be someone who's not drinking, but to continuously reinforce the idea that you're an alcoholic as a part of who you are? Um, That never felt right for me. Um, I also, I can appreciate in the early days that you would want to encourage folks to come to meetings often and come to meetings regularly and seek out the support. But I didn't actually love the fact that a lot of the meetings that I went to had some people in those meetings who had been coming to AA weekly for like 10 years. Mm -hmm. Like for me, I was like, I want to get free of this thing. I don't want this thing to always just be this presence in my life that I have to fight through and fight for. Um, And it just kind of almost felt like shifting. I might get in trouble for this, but I'm just going to say it anyway. And this is totally just my perspective, but it just almost felt like a codependent relationship. Totally. Like if, like you're moving from your addiction to whatever to B 
being reliant and dependent on these meetings and that's what's supporting your sobriety. And if you take that meeting out, then you're likely going to fall off. And first of all, there's, like you said, there's no shame in falling off. There's no shame in relapse. Um, like you said, and I totally agree. And like, this is the perspective I take with my clients. It's like, this is a great opportunity for learning. And we're going to take some really valuable information out of this. And it might just be pointing to an area that needs a little bit more love and a little bit more healing, but that, you know, it, it doesn't mean it's all a wash. It's not this like shame and judgmental thing. Um, oh, I've lost my way. What was I even talking about? Um, <laughs> sorry. I do this all the time. Um, basically, you yeah, know, just uh, talking about how, um, it's, it's kind of a lot of people use meetings, uh, and 12 steps in particular, as I think, like you said, you know, you use the word codependent. I think, yeah, it's just this, yeah. this swap that people make. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I just, for myself, I wanted to, oh, right, the falling off. If you take the AA out of it, you might just fall mm -hmm. off. I guess for myself, um, kind of like how I felt like I was dependent on something external to myself in drinking, you know, I didn't want to be dependent on meetings to support me forever. Like, I didn't want to be like, okay, now I'm going to eat AA meetings for the rest of my life. Like, I wanted to do the internal work, the healing building up my resilience, building up my tools so that I could actually really support myself and not be reliant on anything outside of myself. And I wasn't seeing that in AA. I was just seeing folks who were in a lot of ways, I think, leaning quite heavily on the meetings. And again, like this is not, it's not a judgment thing, but it was just not what I wanted for myself in my own journey. Yeah. Well, I just, and this is where for me, and I, I know that I've gotten slack for it, which I don't care. Um, I, <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I just read an article probably last week that was, you know, basically talking about the, and, and this comparison was AA and a cult and my views uh -huh. are not so extreme. I can laugh at it. Um, but one of uh -huh. the, one of the, the points that this, uh, the person who was writing the article as a doctor was saying the exact same thing that, when you're you're trying to get sober it's so important to have like multiple watering holes to go to uh -huh. to replenish yourself to keep yourself healthy uh -huh. and you know prevent poor i think you know behavior and it's and so just uh -huh. like anything else you in order to build good habits and break old ones it takes a lot of time and it takes multiple resources and I think this goes uh -huh. for anything. I, do, I don't think this just goes for AA. Um, but when you rely so heavily on one program or one person, like just a sponsor, and you're uh -huh. not using other tools, you know, therapy, now online, the sober community online, journaling, meditation, like the multitude of tools is just, you know, uh, endless, really. And it's up to the individual what works best for them. But just like in anything, I mean, you could literally put codependency of one person. When you're relying on one thing and one watering hole, if for any reason that watering hole dries up, 
or or goes mm-hmm. bad for a little and COVID was a perfect example you know like yeah I, I knew right away when that happened like I was extremely worried for a lot of my friends who do do program because the idea is well I have to get to a meeting you know like and I, yep. I have to call my sponsor and do these things and it's like okay but what if you can't you know and so mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. was one thing I remember when I when I thought about being a sponsor and I was like, you know what? I really can't be somebody else's lifeline. Like, you know, it's a great idea in, Mm -hmm. in theory, but realistically Mm -hmm. nobody can be by the phone 24 seven, you know, waiting for somebody else. And, And this is not just for your sponsor for one person. If you're, you know, putting all your emotional support and, and reliance on one person, whether that be your partner, whether that be, you know, your parents or your, even your child or maybe a best friend, like you mm-hmm. have to have multiple people in your corner because you're yeah. also going to damage relationships if you are just constantly coming to one person with all of your issues. And I know, you know, especially in early recovery, when you have a lot of issues, mm-hmm. so you want to be able to kind of spread out and, and drink from different watering holes and, utilize them so they don't just you know like dry up and and get empty yep couldn't agree more yep and I think that that um analogy of watering holes is really great right like um yeah and uh, we I mean in my work and I think in the online community we talk a lot about like recovery or sobriety toolboxes Mm -hmm. and it's like what are all the different things? And everyone's toolbox is going to look a bit different. So for me, it's like, I do a lot of really important self-care stuff, like foundational self-care stuff that I'm really committed to. I meditate, I move my body. I have a really strong sober community that I'm connected to. Um, A handful of really close relationships. I've got tapping in there. Like, There are a whole bunch of things and it's just like you need to be able to look to different sources of support because each situation is going to require something different of you and not every tool that you have is going to be perfect for that situation. So having a wide variety of of, um, things you can use to support yourself is so important. Yes, I know when I when I had my slip back at the beginning of COVID in that moment. Mm -hmm you know, it seemed like I had no tools and it felt like what I, it felt like what I needed to do in that moment. I think I, I, I grasped mm-hmm. for that idea of like, okay, I'm so anxious. I'm so overwhelmed. I need to just not feel this way. And mm-hmm. instead of reaching for, you know, going for a walk, taking 10 minutes and going mm-hmm. on my calm app and meditating and, and using, you know, one of those tools that I had been working on sometimes you just don't think and sometimes it just doesn't happen but the the good thing about having all those tools there was the next day when I woke up instead of shaming myself and like beginning this endless spiral of okay well I already relapsed so might as well keep going or I need to Uh drink to you know, not feel how awful I feel right now. It was okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that was a mistake. I don't know what it, I, mm-hmm. I don't know why I did that right now, but I don't 
want to do it again. So that's where I could pick up, mm-hmm. you know, I meditated yep. and yep. I, you know, moved my body and I exercised that day and I was compassionate with myself. Like you said, I have a very mm-hmm. like ritualistic self-care routine and, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't, I think people sometimes feel maybe judged for their self-care routine or like I need to be more social or like you know I you need to like I guess for me it's like sometimes I need like a a complete night to myself like sorry boyfriend like can you leave um because we live together (laughs) you know like go out tonight go ahead and I will you know watch my show and take a bath and read my book Mm -hmm. and meditate and organize stuff because for me I really like organizing and part of it's OCD so I have to be careful but you know I have (laughs) yeah I have things I like to do to where I feel like really good and really stable and grounded and Mm -hmm. could I have gone out with my boyfriend and saying gone partying with my friends sure does do I seem antisocial at times totally probably but at the same time I remember like the steps that I need to self-care are so much more important to me and my mm-hmm. recovery and mental health above anything else than, than yeah. well, oh, fuck, I, I have to cancel this plan or, you know, oh, crap, you know, I have to cut a commitment or I'm going to be late. Like, finish your self-care. I think that's, people need to remember, like, that should come before anything else. And I know that for me now, it took me a while, but I've found really, really great friends here. Um, and mm-hmm. when I let them know, and I can just be honest with them, like, you know what, guys, I'm feeling like I'm going to have a panic attack. I do not want to come. Or, you know, I'm having mm-hmm. a lot of anxiety, social anxiety. Um, and they can just say, yeah, we totally get it. Like, no worries. And it's not this personal offense. Yeah. And so the mm-hmm. idea I think people need to remind themselves is like, not everybody's going to judge you. You're going to find a group of people, if you haven't already, that totally understand that sometimes you're just going to have bad days and you need to focus inward and that's totally okay. Do whatever you need to do to take care of you first. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I find um, a lot of, even, even that, like in working with clients, when we first start working together, there isn't necessarily a sense of self-care. There is often um, a lot of people-pleasing, a lot of saying yes to everybody else's mm-hmm. needs, usually to the detriment of our own. And so a lot of the work that we do is learning how and, and making it a habit um, of, you know, prioritizing yourself and practicing self-care regularly and creating and learning how to communicate and hold boundaries, right? Um, Which I think is like so essential in sobriety and something that a lot of us, I mean, most of us have never been taught how to um, communicate and hold boundaries before. Um, And it's just so, so, so important um, in, in sobriety, in life, but especially in in sobriety um, so that we can really honor the work that we're doing and the habits we're creating and the change that we're um, working towards in our lives. Well, I love the idea that no is a full sentence. Yeah. Yes. Like, yeah, there doesn't need to be anything else. It's just like, I just think in my mind of that, like Megan Trainor song, like my name is no, my sign is 
no my number is no and so (laughs) when I get caught up in my head because for me a lot of like when I think about like why I drank for me like I have mad anxiety like I have general anxiety I have panic disorder Mm -hmm. right now with COVID I'm going through like a, a small stint of like agoraphobia and even even mm-hmm. today, like I woke up going like, okay, my boyfriend's going back to his regular gym. So he's not going to go to our, our complex gym with me. Now I have to go alone. Oh my God. Like I'm, I've already had, now I have anxiety about that. You know, like I have anxiety about something that hasn't mm-hmm. happened yet and fuck. And so like, that's my thought process. And then I go down these rabbit holes and that was a big reason I drank because I just had such massive social anxiety mm-hmm. and like separation anxiety that I could not even comprehend the, this idea of being around a large group of people or going out without having some sort of buffer. And mm-hmm. now, you know, I still obviously experience anxiety and I think the world is experiencing anxiety right now. So it's totally normal, but I can't even imagine, I can't even yeah. imagine drinking through this because it just makes everything so much worse mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah I mean I couldn't I could not agree more I cannot imagine what drinking through this would look like um and I mean I'm so I've been sober just over four years and so things like I feel like I have a pretty solid mm-hmm. foundation and like my self-care is good and all of that Um, but all of that would go right out the window, I think, if, if I started drinking again. And I mean, I should also say I totally get it. Like we're in this weird, fucked up situation. We don't know when it's ending. We don't know if it's going to get worse. Like we have, you know, it's all just a big question mark. And so many parts of our lives have been impacted and generally we we don't collectively have great coping strategies and booze is everywhere and it's easy and it can be delivered to your home and you don't have to go anywhere. And it's just like a perfect storm for, um, yeah, problems to arise. But, uh, yeah, I also cannot imagine what it would look like to drink through this. So I know we, we touched on it, but I wanted to, hear your background and because this is also something that I'm a cisgender heterosexual white woman so I have a lot of privilege and I don't have a lot of adversity when it comes to the actual I think recovery um, community and experience when I know that that isn't the case for everybody yourself included Um, I'd love to hear about you know, kind of the adversity that you've gone through being part of the LGBTQ community um, and just Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully educate some people and educate me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, I'm a queer woman. And um, yeah, I mean, as part of that, I, you know, I used to definitely be a much bigger part of the party scene. And so over the years, I saw a ton and my my own included but a ton of addiction and a ton of maladaptive um, drinking and drug use and now that I'm on the other side of it and I'm not in my own active addiction I've been looking into it a lot more just to see like 
you know, reasons Mm -hmm. for, for addiction within our community. So within Canada, and I would imagine it's probably similar in the U S um, but within Canada, the LGBTQ plus community experiences rates of addiction that are two to four times higher than straight cisgendered folks, which is wild, like two to four times is a significant yes. amount. Um, and there are so many different factors that make that true. So rejection from friends and family, which is huge. I mean, I personally experienced like when I came out to one of my parents, they said, gay people make me sick. And that was like, that was like the starting point, you know? Um, And I should also say, I've had a lot of family members who have been super supportive and loving and, you know, but for a lot of people, that's not the case, right? Like particularly for LGBT youth, Um, getting kicked out of your family home is a huge trauma and you're not in a place where you have, um, the resources or the means to support yourself. So there's a lot of homelessness within the community, um, and, you know, lack of healthy coping Mm -hmm. strategies and alcohol is everywhere. It's relatively affordable. And so rejection from friends and family, inadequate support systems, like that's a huge part of, what is fueling addiction within our community. Same goes for violence and discrimination, stigma, concurrent mental illnesses like anxiety and depression, and like rates of suicide, suicide, suicidality, whether it's suicidal ideation or suicide attempts or, or, you know, a completed suicide um, rates, you know, in our community are also through the roof. And so there's just, there's a lot going on. And I feel like, you know, the LGBTQ plus community is a prime example of addiction being a symptom of a broken society Mm -hmm. and the impact that that has um, on marginalized communities and, and how deeply oppressive our society can be for a lot of people. It shocks me. And honestly, this is probably because I'm straight and have not been on the receiving end of, you know, um, just some of the horrific shit I've heard. Um, but mm-hmm. literally, um, my cousin came out a couple years ago and I come mm-hmm. from like very like red family, um, uh, mm-hmm. Roman Catholic, um, totally obnoxious, um, <laughs> And I I was surprised at how well our family took it. Although we like obviously did not tell our grandparents who were like strict Polish Catholic, you know, not Mm -hmm. that that's okay. But uh, I just remember I I was talking to my aunt about it when I was visiting uh, this weekend. And she had said that when she, um, when he had came out, my aunt went to like the Barnes and Nobles to try and read books on, you know, how to be supportive, how to, um, you know, be a good parent in this situation. And, and she, she said when she went and no, she's also from like central Cal, this is central California. That's very, very Republican, very, uh, I don't want to say the whole County is uneducated, but it's just an area that's known for being very, uh, I, I would, I would say small-minded. Um, 
and mm-hmm. she goes to the Barnes and Nobles and she she's asking you know oh is there like a book and and the person that was working there was saying like oh do you need like a book like to to help fix him like cure him and it's like oh uh no bitch and like you, you can't just, <laughs> like to just say that to you know somebody but the fact that that is prevalent just it shocks me and it that's a huge part of what scares me about bringing religion into recovery because I think from what I've you know seen from what my cousin has told me I think the media portrays that a lot of people in your community seem to have a problem with religion because it's they they've been outcasted and hated you know and Mm -hmm. and dogmatized by religion so I can't blame them I mean who wants to go into a recovery program based on the same God that supposedly wants to like damn you? That does make sense. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And uh, like historically, and obviously there are all kinds of different religions. Mm -hmm. And also there are lots of churches or like um, sex within certain religions that are welcoming and inclusive and open, but historically and largely religious institutions have not been welcoming have not been um you know yeah not welcoming um folks from my community into their open arms it has not been um a supportive loving relationship and so yeah like I totally agree um there are definitely like lgbtq plus meetings um, that look a little bit different, but still largely um, still operate within the same structures and use the same book and a lot of the same language. And so, you know, one of the things that I've heard about AA or one of the things that, you know, people say about AA is like, oh, you don't have to like, you know, it can just be spiritual. And it's just like, then if it's just spiritual, take the word God yeah. out of it you know? Um, but yes, totally. Like that's a huge barrier for so many people, um, particularly queer folks. Um, and there are also lots of queer folks who are religious. And so it might not feel the same for them, but like, I'm a very spiritual person. I'm not a religious person. And so as like a queer non-religious woman going into an AA meeting, like I just, it feels like there's nothing there for me. And so um, I imagine that, you know, a lot of other folks in recovery spaces can uh, probably feel the same way. Now, in the past couple of years that you've been in recovery, have you found some good sources for people within the LGBTQ plus community? Um, I mean, as we continue to progress, I find that more and more stuff is coming and I'm learning about more and more Mm -hmm. things. And, um, I'm finding that, um, it's in a lot of ways we're making our own community, um, because a lot of the more dominant structures or programs haven't really created spaces for us. And so I'm so grateful to the online world and Instagram in particular, because it's such a great tool for connection and for really 
you know, meeting other people who you really resonate with. And so I'm finding that, yes, the resources are increasing. Um, and also we're just, as we do, and this is like historically something that the community does, but we just like make it our own and figure out ways to navigate it. Um, so whether it's, you know, creating our own community or, connecting with other communities who are just inherently more inclusive, um, which is also great. Um, yeah, I'm, yes, I'm finding there are resources and more and more are coming all the time, which is great. Good. Well, that's good to hear. And I'm, you know, any, anyone who's listening, who's feeling, you know, like that, like that might be something that would be good for them. I would, you know, tell them to definitely reach out to you afterwards um, and get yes, information absolutely. and resources because you can't have enough resources ever. <laughs> agreed. Agreed. And I know that was a huge thing for me when I started the dry club, you know, because at first it was just me and then I slowly but surely got other people to help me on board. And now I have this whole system of hosts who run the account. And it was really important for me when I was putting together who I wanted to you know lead the community was that everybody was represented and so it can be difficult because you know I think especially for like men and women in general like finding a male host was extremely difficult because I think when I look at my the analytics it's like 84% of our audience identifies as female so I yeah. think just in general, yeah. you know, we're still living in a society that, you know, that where the toxic masculinity exists and talking about your emotions mm-hmm. and especially creating it, you know, an online profile dedicated to your emotions and your recovery, I think is definitely extremely stigmatized still and probably harder for men. And I know I've talked to a couple of my male friends about it and how it, it is it is very um scary uh for them uh-huh. and then we created a thousand hours dry stag and at first I was worried because I didn't want people to think like oh well why isn't there a women's page and to me it was kind of this idea well it seemingly seems to be the main page is a women's page because it's it's so you know <laughs> most of my hosts are women or non-binary And um, I wanted a a place to give men where they could connect with other men and, Mm -hmm. you know, and read statistics and things geared towards just men. And I think I love the idea of, you know, a 1000 hours dry account for the LGBTQ plus community that could be run specifically by people of that community and have content geared towards that community because like you said the statistics are going to be different the information the content the stories everybody you know they want to see themselves in in somebody when they when somebody Uh posts what these sober influencers that are now coming you know this new niche that's being built which I think is great but you know we got a lot of cisgender white females out there and their you know, their content's amazing and I love all of them, but we're definitely not, you know, this huge diverse group of of people yet. And so I think reaching out and letting people know like, 
it's okay to have a voice and to speak up and be a leader, even if you feel like, well, what qualifies me? It's like, nothing qualified me to start a thousand hours dry. I honestly did it out of kind of like selfish needs of like wanting to find uh-huh. people for myself. And that, and now it became yep. something else. So this idea of, oh, well, I can't be a sober influencer or I can't be, you know, a leader on, in, on an online community for whatever reason, like there are no qualifications. Like, <laughs> totally. Know. Yep. Yeah. And, and like, other than, you know, being a sober person or having the desire to be sober and like wanting to bring people together, I mean, anybody can be a community totally. builder. Um, and so, and I, and I love that. And I love the idea of an LGBTQ plus community within the thousand um, dry hours. I think that that's like awesome. Um, and uh, like also other groups, yes. right? Like, um, black folks and brown folks and indigenous folks and all, you know, all the people, because representation, like you say, is, is so, so, so important. And within the recovery spaces, they've, you know, representation is often really lacking. And a lot of, like you say, a lot of the influencers are white for sure. White women. We don't see a lot of like, folks with disabilities and you know so it's just there's there's still I think we're we've built and we're building awesome communities and there's still so much work to do oh, yeah and I've I talked about this mm-hmm. with um my friend Keola who um is a black woman and she's part of um the Sober Black Girls Club and just talking about how it's still I think similar to men, like it, the stigma is different for different yeah. communities and different, different skin colors. Like it's harder to ask for help. It's, it's more stigmatized to say I'm struggling or to, to reach yep. out and go to a meeting or, or to just stop drinking altogether. Like, so rem- remembering, I think w- when you are a community builder, or if you are an influencer that you want your content to be able to reach all different kinds of people and to resonate with different kinds of people. So that's one thing I know I, I talk with my host about when they're posting content, it's, it needs to have a a wide variety for everybody because, Mm -hmm. you know, one post might not resonate with you, but as long as we are, we are doing our best to try and represent everybody. um, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, that's all we can do as community leaders. And just yep. like you said, having and creating a safe space for people when they are ready to be open or stand up and say, you know what, I, I want to be a leader. I want to share my story with others. How can I do that? We have a, a platform that's available to them, you know, no questions asked. And so mm-hmm. it's just, I think, creating safe environments, which that's what I think the online community, especially Instagram, like you said, it can be, you know, not so nice at times, but for the most part, it's extremely, you know, safe and you can, you know, do it from the comfort of your own home, which Uh especially during this time, like that's really our only option. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Totally. And I also love that, um, Folks can like, because not everybody is ready 
to be like loud and proud about their sobriety and um I love that that Instagram is a a, a platform that you can just passively observe mm-hmm. and take it all in and you can privately convert like have conversations with people if you want to but you know that was something for me I mean when I got sober I literally knew one other sober person and um I largely looked to the online community and specifically other women in in the sobriety space um, for inspiration and for information and education and all of it. And I didn't say anything really to anybody outside of my partner and like one or two other people when I was getting sober for the first six months because I was terrified I would relapse and I didn't want anybody to know how bad my struggle was and the shame of all of it. But yeah, having people you can look to and, and, you know, take all that in, take all the goodness in without having to put yourself out there or without having to, you know, worry about disclosing, um, I think can be so powerful for people. Yeah, it's, it's cool to watch. I've seen so many accounts who follow like the 1000 hours dry account who started off, you know, uh, having like an anonymous page, you know, maybe just, uh, sober in Seattle or or and that didn't have their name Uh didn't have who they were and they would just follow and then I've talked to a lot of people how it's like following like you said maybe you're not ready to get sober just yet you're kind of exploring that sober curious area and then you get inspired and then like there's just there's one girl I'm thinking of in particular who started out and was totally anonymous and then now like post pictures of herself she changed her handle so her name is in it and that all happened through you know the confidence that was built on the Instagram you know sober community and allowing her to be herself and allowing her to say hey it's okay if you slip up we're not gonna condemn you for it here and you know Mm -hmm. your story can help others and then realizing oh you're right like I do have something to offer somebody else in the sober community even if I feel like I don't um Mm -hmm. and that's been a really cool thing to watch happen is just watching people flourish and change and evolve um because you can you know you can see it physically on Instagram versus you know I think when you when you see people change in real life it's amazing but you can physically see these transformations on Instagram the growth of confidence the growth of you know finding yourself um and mm-hmm. it's just a reminder of how powerful the online community is and can continue to be as we grow mm-hmm. yeah I love that I love that so much and it feels um kind of in a lot of ways similar to like coming out <laughs> right it's just like I mean there are a lot of people who are who identify within the LGBTQ plus community who are still like quote unquote closeted. And there are a lot of people who are struggling with addiction, but don't necessarily talk about it. And I think that they're, and I get all the reasons in both of those cases, why you wouldn't feel like you had the strength or the confidence to share what you're going through and, and all of it. And I also think it's such a powerful um, it's such a powerful step to come out as being sober or to come out as a queer person. And 
so much of that inspires other people and you know, your vulnerability and your strength can impact people in ways that you have no idea. Right. And you never know who's watching and you never know who might feel that much stronger, that much more motivated or that much more confident because you shared a vulnerable piece of you and your story. Um, I just think it's so beautiful. I couldn't agree more. So Amy, I like to kind of wrap up my podcast with asking a simple question, which is if you could speak to Amy in early recovery or Amy who was trying to get sober, um, Uh what is one piece of advice that you looking back would give to her? Um, just to keep going and to know that the life that is coming is so magical and beautiful and that all the things that she has struggled through will end up being some of her greatest strengths. Yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. And why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you online if they want to connect? Yeah. Uh, so my web- website is wholeandwell.com. So H-O-L-A-N-D-W-E-L-L.com. And folks can also find me on Instagram at, um, at Ms. Amy C. Willis. So M-S-A-M-Y-C as in cat, W-I-L-L-I-S. Perfect. And I will be putting that in the episode details per usual. Thank you so much for being with me today, Amy. Thanks, Kayla. This was so great. Have a good rest of your day. You too. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Dry Life Podcast a podcast about alcohol-free living. If you want to connect with us, you can do so on Instagram at 1000HoursDry. Or if you're looking for a little bit more support, we recently partnered with an app for Apple iOS, which is called Digital Sponsor, that you can look up and get full support, tools, and an accountability guide for our 1000 Hours Dry Challenge. So check it out, and we'll see you next week on the Dry Life Podcast.